Hello and welcome back to Brendan. I hope the uh, coronavirus lockdown isn't treating you too badly. Uh, I'm going to try and get as much content out as possible to keep people entertained and uh, all that good stuff. Uh, this uh, episode we have Ed Bark on the show uh, and he talks in depth on uh, AI in a sort of medical setting. Uh, really, really cool, really, really interesting. Um, thoroughly enjoyed this episode. Uh, so without further ado, here's this week's episode. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Brain Dump. This is a podcast where we talk about life from the meaningful to the, to the extreme. extreme. Thanks, Ed. So tell us a bit about yourself. My name's Ed. Just finished an undergraduate in artificial intelligence, six months into a PhD in digital health and care. Why were you interested in AI to begin with? I don't know. I think it just I used to do biology dropped out from doing that and, and worked odd jobs for a few years but I guess I was just out of curiosity about how the brain works it's just a nice way to combine sort of computer science and a curiosity about how the brain operates okay yeah it makes sense the more I learned about artificial intelligence the more I realized I was less interested in artificial intelligence research end of and more about the applications you could use it for like healthcare I see your PhD is is it's a, in digital health and care but it, it's sort of a real multidisciplinary center nine of us all doing PhDs at the same time in a centre of doctoral training, which is just somewhere that specialises in training people to do a PhD in a certain area. So it's made up of psychologists, engineers, software engineers, people like me to do AI, and like neuroscientists. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay, artificial intelligence, so AI, what exactly is that? It gets bandied around like it's a bit of a buzzword now. Like mm. Everyone sort of wants artificial intelligence in their business, even if it's not suitable. And an electric toothbrush, I saw, claimed to have artificial intelligence. And it's like, it's not a protected term. So I'd say it encompasses a lot more than people think. And a lot of people hear artificial intelligence, they think of machine learning. But learning is just one of many things that artificial intelligence is. You have knowledge representation, you know, just how you store information, unstructured knowledge. When you like talk to Siri and things like that, you know, it needs to have a knowledge base and how it processes language. Like natural language processing is another part, planning. But machine learning is the big one that everyone's taking on board and can make sense of all the data we've gathered over like the past decade or so. Uh, in layman's terms, you're basically inputting lots of data into a algorithm and it's extrapolating more detailed information from that? Yeah, and I'd say what's different about that compared to just normal statistics is that you're using neural networks, which are just ways to simulate the sort of activity our brain does when we're processing information. It's not as clear cut. A lot of old AI used to have rules-based systems. Yeah, so you'd use logic. If it is sunny and it's a Monday, then do this thing. Whereas now, it's quite abstract information that you're processing. You don't necessarily understand how that neural network is processing it, but you're getting the correct output. Okay, so uh, you're saying about how if it's a Monday and it's sunny, do this. That's almost using yes and no criteria to formulate a solution to something. Yeah, whereas now neural networks are based on like an artificial neuron, which that was based on something called the McCulloch-Pitts neuron, which is basically you have a couple of inputs. So in computer science, you sort of have and statements, or statements. It's like if either of these things are true, then it, the whole thing evaluates as true. Or if both of these are true, then it evaluates. And if either one is wrong, then it doesn't evaluate as true. And you can actually represent any problem in that format. So you could have an artificial neuron where you have two inputs, uh, which is binary zero or one, where zero is false, one is true. And you could say if... So one would be Monday and one would be sunny, whether or not it's sunny. And you'd only evaluate that as true if both are true. So you get two, two ones coming in, both true. It would evaluate as, yeah, it's sunny and Monday. 
and you can combine lots of those together to get more complicated formats. But neural networks can be much more complicated than that, so your input won't necessarily just be binary inputs. It sounds almost like a dichotomous key. When I was identifying things in the field, I had like a dichotomous key and went, does it have six legs? Yes or no? Yeah. And then you would go down that avenue, and you know, does it have two hind legs and four post nostrum whatever yeah you know and then you would talk about are they ridged or are they unridged and then from then you would be able to find whatever it is you're looking for that sounds more like a decision tree so say you had like 1000 insects and they all had these features that you identified like six legs two wings bloody blah, blah, blah a machine learning algorithm could work out what feature like splits those the most at each point so you might find 500 of those animals have six legs 500 have and then like you would have asked further questions in those at each step you're trying to split them into the two largest groups possible mm -hmm. so presumably in sort of a medical setting you'd use this for like diagnosis of disease yeah what's really good in medicine is that you can do a bayesian network which is it's a way of representing knowledge with probabilities where there's causal links between them okay. um so you could say a set of symptoms are related to certain diseases but obviously other diseases share the same symptoms so your input would be say a set of symptoms and they would make outcomes more likely than others and it's good to use Bayesian networks for things like medicine, where you need to have a chain of reasoning. So it would be able to give you a list of likelihoods of each disease, and that enables the doctor to then make a good informed decision. Whereas a lot of machine learning, you can't see what happens in the middle. You can just see the input and the output. So you can't say how that machine learning came to that decision, which, which can cause lots of problems because there's loads of examples of machine learning where it's made mistakes based on things that you're not aware of so there was like a big horse image data set where they were trying to identify pictures of horses don't know why mm -hmm. and in the particular set of horse images they used every time there was a horse there was a little watermark in the corner so they thought their algorithm got really good at identifying pictures of horses but it just got good at identifying this watermark and so when they tested it on new horse images which didn't have the watermark it failed and they couldn't work out why i see because there was like another variable that's the AI was accounting for that we weren't aware of. Yeah, but then obviously when you're in a medical context, that stuff is really important. Mm. But if you're trying to get pictures of horses, that's not going to save someone's life. But there's a company called Babylon Health who has this symptom checker and you pop in all your symptoms. They were diagnosing a lot of women who had heart attack symptoms with hysteria, which is yeah. <laughs> mental. Yeah. Because like the heart attack symptoms for a woman look very different to a man and they didn't account for that. So it was, it was biased. But then when you have differences in demographic differences like that you need even larger data sets to account for them quite often the data is just as important as what you're doing to it these data sets you're literally pulling loads and loads of information about patients and generating ai applied diagnostic work from those data sets and then you train the ai to investigate whether people have diseases or not yeah particularly good at say medical imaging ai tends to be particularly good at the things that it's very difficult for you to articulate how you know a certain thing but through years of experience you kind of develop an intuition for it so if a doctor looks at a scan he might be able to say okay that's cancer and he's like okay you can explain what features about that image make you know it's cancer they won't necessarily be able to explain that but it doesn't mean that it's not there okay so if a wearable device and it was tracking someone's i know their blood pressure their heart rate their body temperature and you could input that information diagnose whether someone was 
close to a stroke or anything along those lines. That's a really exciting part of it is that we're not just looking at symptoms and trends that we already know about that are hard to track. We're trying to identify new biomarkers or behavioural biomarkers. There's work being done into people with rheumatoid arthritis. They'll sometimes have flare-ups and there's no rhyme or reason to when they get them. They'll just get them, but it, you know they'll have to stay home from work. They can't do certain activities. So there's a lot of work going into people having wearables, trying to capture as much information as possible and trying to find out, okay, are there certain features that we can identify that mean someone's going to have a flare-up and can we intervene at a point before that which will stop them having a Mm flare-up so a lot of it is about developing new ways of tracking people outside of a clinical setting alzheimer's for example the only time you can check up on people is say every six months when they come to the clinic and they take a cognitive test but if they haven't slept well the night before or if they hadn't eaten that will affect their results more than say the degradation of the disease in general Mm -hmm. so a lot of the work that they're doing in digital health is to try and develop ways of monitoring diseases in a home setting, like when you're in a natural environment. It's really not about replacing the job of healthcare professionals. It's about assisting them and doing things we weren't actually able to do before. There's never going to be enough work for doctors. Like we always need more doctors, always need more nurses. Otherwise, we get to a point in the future where every other person would be working in healthcare because of how long we're living and the conditions we have. So you're basically making sort of diagnosis more effective. You're being able to hopefully preempt health conditions and identify mystery or unknown background health issues. Yeah, you're sort of trying to get at every point. You know, management of existing conditions, diagnosis of undiagnosed conditions, even just improving efficiency in, in the NHS. Like, you know, some projects are looking into allocating bed space more effectively. Some people are discharged too early, some too long. If you're trying to identify like the best point to, to help them be discharged from the hospital, that improves healthcare outcomes hugely, even though like an algorithm about beds <laughs> doesn't sound <laughs> particularly um mm-hmm. Like it's relevant to healthcare. So what are you in doing particularly in, in with your PhD? So I'm actually just settled on doing a research topic about improving outcomes and sepsis for intensive care unit patients. So like a few problems with it. One is that development of sepsis is so quick, people can go downhill in a few hours and die. A huge percentage of people with sepsis die. So what one is like trying to reduce the time of diagnosis. The other problem is that once you diagnose them, it's difficult to know what antibiotics will be effective because mm-hmm. you can get sepsis People listening don't know sepsis is just when your your basically your bloodstream is infected. Like your whole you've got a whole body wide infection. It can be a virus, it can be bacteria, it can be a fungus or a parasite, and it's not always easy to tell that. The only way you can tell is like a do you do a blood test and you find out that you have high levels of you know immune response. If you can give the right antibiotic faster, then you can really improve outcomes. So I'd be looking into generating machine learning algorithm which would pick up on kind of say the signature of a disease in terms of like how it changes your blood pressure heartbeat breathing to try and figure out what pathogen it is and then what antibiotic to give presumably you're then uh, going to be working at identifying the biomarkers that are worth monitoring for an ai to put together a potential diagnosis it's actually a really important part of doing machine learning is, is something called feature selection where you look at a whole so you've quartered the data you've taken 20 different kinds of vital signs and you say, okay, which one of these is most important at predicting whether how people survive? And then you can select the ones that are most important and then start to try and identify how those affect what disease or what pathogen that person has. So that would be a combination of inputting data like blood samples and or would it be more integrated in things like wearable devices? It'd be across the board. So because I'm looking at an intensive care unit, it would just be using like the existing form of vital signs monitoring that they already have. But you take that in conjunction with lab tests, pathologies, even just their, their, their medical history. Like if they've had diabetes, uh, comorbidities, that affects 
people's outcomes as well. Burns victims, their symptoms in intensive care unit will look totally different. So when you get sepsis, there's really subtle changes like your heartbeat goes up, your blood pressure changes. But if you're a burns victim, that happens anyway. So mm. you sort of need to know what a sepsis look like in that patient on top of their already existing symptoms. Do you have to do a lot of ethics for this? Yeah, it's a balance between protecting patients and protecting people but not stifling innovation. So, mm. so the, the more rigorous the ethics is, the more expensive it is to do trials. And so the less people can afford to go out and, and innovate and do new things, which is why you can do sort of a lot of retrospective studies where you don't do any interventions, you don't do any changes. You just look back at what's happened in the past and try and make inferences from that data. We've done ethics for a couple of small projects we've done, and it's just a lot of jumping through hoops. Mm-hmm. Presumably for your research, you might have to find people who've had sepsis or they have it at the moment and then collect lots of data from them and then try and figure out a pattern that the algorithm can then generate. Yeah, I've been talking to a guy, a doctor that works in the intensive care unit in Bristol. And so he, he wants to work with the patients he has there. So he's got massive data set. The idea would be to develop an algorithm and then test it on the patients within his ward. And what Bristol's doing something really cool called connecting care, where they're trying to connect information from all different parts of the NHS together so you can use that data in one place. If you go to the GP, they don't necessarily have access to your hospital records. So if you went to A&E last week, they don't necessarily know that. And if you then got mental health provision, they don't know that either. So quite often people can take part in, say, five different parts of the NHS and you don't know anything about that. So someone got admitted to hospital and they had sepsis, you might not know that they were given medication from the nursing home they were in. So connecting care is a really good thing that is happening in the southwest that lets you see all that information in one place. And so that really helps people like me when I go to do this research because just the data set is much more rich. Yeah, the more data you have, the more you can infer from from that information what potential health concerns that they might have. Surely there must be a risk of error here if you diagnose someone with the wrong thing. Is that a possibility? There's things you can do. So you can sort of change your diagnosis to be more sensitive or less sensitive. Um, you talk about sensitivity and specificity. The simplest thing you could do, would, I can make an algorithm that just diagnoses everyone with cancer. So from one point of view, it's really good because it means everyone that's got cancer will receive treatment for it. But then you're giving chemotherapy and all sorts of treatments to, to you know all these people that don't have cancer and that's really bad because it costs money and they're going to have a negative time you can go back the other way where you, you know you're really selective but you miss out on those people who have that mm-hmm. and you could do a nice graph where you can change the balance and you're trying to find that sweet spot where you're not letting anyone through the net but you're limiting the amount of resources that you're allocating mm-hmm. um, and yeah there's ways you can measure that and there's thresholds which people consider to be acceptable so there's always going to be noise in the data set. There's always going to be variability around that threshold. Yeah. So there is a chance that people will, as you say, be diagnosed when they shouldn't be and people who receive treatments when they, they shouldn't. They call it doctor in the loop. So okay. when you have these, what they're known as clinical decision support systems, just something that helps the doctor decide to do something. But with the doctor in the loop, they always make the final decision. So you can never blame the algorithm or the machine learning tool for a a poor decision because it always has to go past the doctor and i think that needs to remain in place especially because people will get overly reliant on this technology and Mm. forget to do the job themselves no of course human intuition will never really be replaced so surely there's a lot of coding involved people have to sit down and code the ability for this uh, program to make these decisions yeah there's a lot of coding most people do machine learning in Python and the technology called TensorFlow, Keras. From an outsider's point of view, we always have this idea of Skynet and Terminator taking over the world. Yeah. And there are horror stories, 
did a bit of research before this. Uh, Microsoft made Sophia. Yeah. You could communicate to it and somehow it got obsessed with human extermination <laughs> yeah and started being really racist and that was an interesting one because it, it, that's just based on a bad data set because the data set was just what people said to it and so people quite quickly realized oh it's learning from what the information we give to it mm-hmm. so people kept talking about nazism and just very politically incorrect stuff and it learned from that so the algorithm was doing its job but people took advantage of it and that's why it went south the data you use is super important have you heard of 23andme mm-hmm yeah, I'm on it. Yeah, so they, they've got loads and loads of genetic information about white Europeans. The more data they have about people, the better it gets, and the more accurate it gets. You're white and Europeans, so and you'll mm-hmm. probably have quite a good, accurate background. If your background's from Nigeria, say, mm-hmm. there's hardly anyone on the 23andMe data set from there, so it's going to be really inaccurate, and it won't give you very good information about your genetic predispositions to certain diseases. Mm. So that's like an example of just a bad data set. But what's interesting is they're actually now paying people from populations they don't have much data on to take the tests to improve that genetic data is, is completely unique to yourself but there's a considerable overlap with people from your own ethnicity yeah so if your ethnic group isn't being represented in the data set then you can't possibly understand what kind of genetic makeup will lead to genetic diseases and other heritable traits because you're represented in the data set yeah a lot of the the mistakes in ai would almost be from not having enough data or a biased data set. Yeah, Amazon had just took a data set of all the people they'd hired in the past and they tried to streamline their recruitment policy, just try and sift through all these CVs that were to, to identify the best candidates. And what they found, that it was really sexist against women. They didn't want to hire women, but that's because historically they'd only hired, well, they, not only, but they hired a lot of men. Mm. And because their data set was men and they had more of them, it was better at predicting the success of men and women mm-hmm. so and that, that did not give them good press coverage i can imagine that because they say the same thing about a lot of drugs are trialed and tested on men and they originally thought we'll just lower the dosage by 20 percent because on average women are 20 percent smaller yeah but it, but it turns out our physiologies are com- so different that actually a lot of drugs have completely different effects on women as they do men particularly with regards to pregnancies and how much of an impact they can have there. I can understand why it'd be really, really valuable to have an unbiased data set. Yeah, that's a really good example. A lot of it is because of the hormonal cycle, like the menstrual cycle that women Mm -hmm. have, and that really affects your whole physiology, like your body temperature changes and you've got different hormones floating around. It's expensive to eliminate those like confounding variables. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time it's just a question of cost. A lot of scientists and researchers want to be rigorous, but it's just a question of cost. So there's drugs where, yeah, the effects on women aren't well known Mm -hmm. because of that. These AI programs, you have to constantly keep monitoring them because otherwise if you just set them off and they were doing their thing and they're not accounting for things like ethnicity and gender and other variables that are important for diagnoses or however the, the AI is being set up, it could completely go the wrong way. There definitely needs to be more oversight in that regard. You quite often have a training data set. You have all this data, you split it up into segments and you train on, say, 60% of the data and test it on the remaining 40%. 
and you can get good results that way. And you can sort of chop up the data any which way and, and keep trying that. And once you believe you've reached like a certain level of accuracy, then you can try it on new cases. Mm -hmm. But it's quite rare for something to just be put out in the wild and act upon it. The sepsis thing that I'm going to be working on, you can test that on new cases without actually telling the doctor about it. You can just see if it guesses correctly compared to the doctor's decisions. I see. Um, so if, if the doctor happens to make the same decision that the algorithm has made, you can say, okay, we'll use that as one and see what the outcome is and if it's correct then you can say okay the algorithm was correct the more time you get the more data you've got and you can confirm it you're comparing the results of the algorithm with real life human doctor diagnoses and saying okay well if the doctor's diagnosing it right and the algorithm's diagnosing it right it's probably quite likely that the algorithm's working because yeah. they've both come to the same conclusion oh, that's fascinating and are they accurate is it effective and is it, you know, a useful tool for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends on the application. If you said it was 80% accurate, you think, okay, that doesn't sound good enough. Mm -hmm. But if the doctor was doing 70%, then it's definitely an improvement. Yeah. Um, but I do know, at least in medical imaging, there's extremely accurate, you know, 98% like accurate algorithms for, say, cancer in, in x-rays and, say, lung x-rays. So that's pretty fun fundamental. Like but there's maybe not as good as pigeons. There was a, a study where they, one, one pigeon trying to guess... If an image has cancer, it's pretty rubbish at like 60%, but mm -hmm. 100 pigeons looking at the same image, over 90% accurate. So <laughs> pigeons <laughs> might be better. <laughs> what? That's, that's either amazing or really worrying. It's like crowdsourcing pigeon brains. Well, don't they use a lot of crowdsourcing for AI programming? I was reading when you, you know, when it like asks for a password and then it says, click the images that show traffic lights in the picture. And I was reading and it was saying that every time you correctly identify the traffic lights in the image or the car in the image, it's helping program an AI imaging recognition software. Yeah, and that, that, that's a good segue into supervised learning, which is just a form of machine learning and one of the most common. And supervised learning is just when you label the data you're putting in. So when you're looking at those images of traffic lights and you're clicking on the segments of the image which contain it, what you're basically doing is labeling that image and saying that part is a traffic light. So when you come to train it, you give the training data has unlabeled images. So you would give the blank images with no attachment. You have no idea where the traffic light is. You test on the label. Sorry, you train on labeled images. So it, it starts to identify, okay, they're the sorts of things which look like traffic lights. And you train on unlabeled images. And so, yeah, what you're doing there is just the manpower of, of, of labeling images in the first place. So you're kind of, yeah, you're kind of learning off the back of humans there. Yeah. And unsupervised learning is trying to come up with associations without any labels at all. I see. Wow. So that must be really difficult because you've somehow got to set the rules in place that it can recognize traffic lights without ever being taught what a traffic light looks like. Yes, that might not be the best domain to do unsupervised learning because it might identify part of the pole and then the, the light itself and then, mm -hmm. I don't know, the side of a car. It doesn't operate in the framework that we do where a car is a whole object or yeah. the traffic light, the part we're interested in is just the three round bits. Mm -hmm. Do you think the overall future of AI is a positive or a negative thing? I think it depends. I don't think it's as negative as people think. I just mm. think that you have great dystopian novels about it. It's like it's more exciting to talk about the negative parts. Uh -huh. With technology, there's a history of kind of do first, think later, or only introduce ethics and legal frameworks once mistakes are made. When computers were first a thing and the internet was first a thing, there was plenty of pirating of information, but the law didn't take care of that. And the same thing's happening again now. Because, you know, the computer scientist that develops the algorithm doesn't consider himself responsible for, say, 
the, the, what he puts into place. The doctor using it doesn't consider themselves responsible. So it's like we need to know where the accountability lies. And there's quite a few big names really trying to push for that safety and verification in AI. There's a guy called Max Tegmark. He's written a book called Life 3.0, which talks about all the different ways he sees AI going, like positive or negative. And he set up the Future of Life Institute. Future of Life Institute. Yeah, and, and then they're, they're pushing safety in AI and things like that. Oh, um, sweet. But one really cool thing that this guy talks about is a human zoo where you set AI the responsibility to look after humans and, and make sure we're well. And so it realizes that the earth is probably better off without us, sets up an environment for us to live in, which is quite safe and protects the world. But it's really just a zoo where we're sort of kept happy and docile. But Have you seen uh, Wally, the cartoon? Yeah. And that's effectively what happens where all the humans go off in search of new planet to live on yeah and they live on these huge cruise ship spaceship things and they're all in sitting in hover chairs getting really fat and all they have constant entertainment because the ai has given them the luxury life yeah so do you think jobs will be taken by ai and that's something that really worries me unless we sort of take steps to address it with things like universal basic income people think there's something that's going to happen in the future but i think it's already happening now i had a talk about something like 90 percent of the jobs that graduates are taking now didn't exist 10 years ago and uh, you know we're, we're just in the early days people are staying at university later and later over 50 percent of people go to university now to do an undergrad and about 10 percent go on to do a master's whereas it used to be 10 percent used to do your basic undergraduate so i think jobs are getting more specialized people have to stay in education longer to do the jobs but not everyone can go to that level of specialization like with the industrial revolution like we took like low-skill manual labor jobs and people think that there's always going to be jobs created when new technology comes around but i think we're reach starting to reach our limits of the sheer quantity of people you can train to such a high level and also the jobs that are super specialized aren't that interesting so yeah i think it's really worrying and so what do you think we're going to all have to start learning how to code and stuff to make sure that we have jobs that are applicable for us yeah, but I mean, even coding, that's something which is, could be quite easy to automate. The way to go forward is to tax the work that the robots do, use that money to give everyone a universal basic income. Everyone should have reduced working hours and the work that is available, we can share. But it does make you wonder the sorts of things people would like to do if they have more free time are creative pursuits mm -hmm. and then you start to think okay but what if the robots well, not, not robots i mean what if, what if technology can make the same sort of creative stuff that we can and then mm -hmm. you're like what's just brings into question your sense of like what our purpose is on the earth well massively like being creative is what kind of defines us as a species no no other species does art to the extent that we do art sport on a scale that we do sport like yeah you, you see i don't know dolphins playing with pebbles and stuff but that's, you know, the extent of their play, but where we have football tournaments across the globe. and But do you think that if technology could do the creative things we could do, it would make it any less enjoyable? Because chess, chess was, was beaten by computers back in the 80s, but there's still chess championships. Chess is still well-respected and people still enjoy watching humans play chess. Mm. So do you think if AI could make books and art just as well as we can, do you think we would respect human art just the same or less? Part of what makes art as enjoyable as it is is the fact that it's emotionally driven and it is imperfect um knowing that it's one of our species who created this one of our boys one of our boys <laughs> i don't know if ai could make more perfect art or because they've made ai that's created music that's really really popular well what's 
our purpose now. <laughs> but then you could say they just plug in thousands of songs and say, write a song that sounds a bit like this thousand songs you've heard. So you, you could say it's not really original. It's good. But I, it, again, it's like off the back of all the stuff we've done. Mm. There's an AI that's written a book. Like, I think we talked about this before. Like Was it Harry Potter and the portrait of what looked like a large pile of ash? <laughs> was a book written by an AI because it just you just fed in all the Harry Potter books and that's what it came up with. Like, anyway. It's actually amazing. Is that shit? Well, it's rubbish, but it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it can only go off what it already knows, and what it already knows is whatever we give it. Yeah. So an AI's interpretation of human art, I guess. It's just like a rehashing of what humans have already done. Like, mm. I don't know if you could label it as truly creative. But here's a question for you. Okay. What do you think AI will never be capable of? And do you think like an individual AI will ever be more intelligent than the most intelligent human because yeah. in the moment you you have specific artificial intelligence and general artificial intelligence and we're just working on specific stuff couldn't get a chess program to cook a meal mm. so like general ai is really complicated like do you think there'll ever come a point where it will be able to do what we can do in homo deus he says we'll effectively create our own successes so with a combination of technology genetic modification things like ai we will create a species that is similar but basically better than us that will then outcompete us or just get up and leave and just be more successful than and uh, the TV series Altered Carbon where the privileged have the the money and technology to transfer their consciousness into clones of themselves so they can effectively live forever should their body die because they can just download their consciousness yeah. put it in another body of fresh perfect genetics and they can because they have the money they can live forever and although that is quite utopia dystopia i don't see why that wouldn't be possible because of the technology that we're in now thousand years from now as long as coronavirus and climate change doesn't wipe us out before then it could quite quite easily possible that we do create homo species that is better yeah. than ourselves so do you think it'll be human augmentation that will augment ourselves where we'll have the technology as part of us. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, would, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're getting that way already. Like there's um in Sweden, for example, a lot of them have chips in their in their wrists. They will scan their hand into their, cool. their garage and they open up and then there's their car and so their their key to their house is effectively on their wrist. Obviously such a small number of people have this, but the fact that it's happening, you know, our smartphones are so incredibly powerful yeah. that it, and they are with us almost all the time that they are effectively an extension of us. It won't be a matter of time until that's built into us somehow. Um, yeah, because you're not anywhere without your phone and, and, you know, you need to recharge it. They're all barriers to what we want. What we want is something that's immediately available all the time, never runs out of power. Mm. So if you can make that part of you, that would be pretty cool. Also scary though, the problem with a lot of capitalism is it's based off making our lives more comfortable, making our lives more easy. And that's already having negative effects in first world countries where people obesity rates have never been so high and luxury at the yeah. tips of our fingers. If we then implement that into ourselves where we don't even have to do maths because we have a calculator in our brain that does yeah. it all for us. Or Google Maps, don't have to do any navigation. Yeah, like when do we start losing our humanity when technology is so well integrated into us i think it's, yeah that's a really good point i mean obviously we're gonna have to control ai have you heard of the te technological singularity no so 
if you believe it is possible that we can create something more intelligent than ourselves, mm-hmm. the idea is that that will then be able to create something more intelligent than it. And, the t- and, and so you'll have this runaway explosion in intelligence, which is very hard to predict what that will look like. We don't know what that super intelligent thing will want to do with us, if it feels we're necessary, what it will do. A bit like the supercomputer in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. And then like the answer is 42, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think that probably is possible. And I remember uh, reading an article about we've made a an injection that you can inject into someone that effectively means that they don't require to breathe for 20 minutes. Whoa. It's effectively, I don't know how they do it or didn't understand the full length of it, but something about super oxygenating your blood. So then everything, all your muscles, all your organs get enough oxygen supply without the need of your lungs. If you need a lung transplant, they can lop them out, stick them back in. Do you still feel like you need to breathe? I don't know. I think I imagine you'd be unconscious, but still not dead. If that's what we have now, uh, I remember Stephen Hawkins thinking that we will genetically engineer and partly augment our lungs that we can breathe other atmospheres, gases. So we could live on Mars, not because we've created some kind of ventilation machine but because we've actually physically changed our bodies with the aid Mm. of technology and genetic manipulation that then we will be able to modify ourselves to cope i think like the augmentation aspect of it is really important for the ethics because people talk about the trolley problem if if you're on a, a a train and the train's going towards say five people tied to a train track and you can pull a lever and it turns off but it goes over one person on a train track it's like a sort of philosophical dilemma if you're passive five people die if you pull if you pull the lever you're responsible but you've killed a person Mm -hmm. the utilitarian thing is that you've saved you know four people so if a car is in that situation what does it do you need to have emotions and some form of limbic system in order to be able to make those decisions Mm -hmm. augmenting ourselves and having the ai be a part of us is a way to get around that ethical dilemma would it ever be possible to engineer ai so that they have emotions i don't think emotions are possible without biology i think you need glands you think so presumably a lot of emotions are driven by neurons and chemical pathways in the body surely if that's what all emotions are we could somehow engineer that in a way do you know what emotions are not chemical so like love oxytocin isn't it Mm -hmm. adrenaline um um, adrenaline (laughs) so i feel like they would at least maybe not glands but they'd at least have to have a biological brain of sorts where they they, can interact with those i see so you're thinking that because thinking synaptic neurons and we can map that with the electrical impulses and that but emotions is more hormonally driven that we couldn't possibly engineer hormones yes yeah, so obviously i don't know too much about this but that is my understanding no yeah it's my understanding as well i mean obviously we're speculating massively here but <laughs> pretty exciting so scary that that could even be a possibility yeah i have no idea I would love to know other people's thoughts on the idea because I think that'd be pretty cool. Equally quite scary. For example, uh, going back to sort of our original exploration of AI, Google was saying that they could track the number of emails with the word flu in it and they could predict a flu outbreak a week and a half earlier than a flu outbreak actually occurred because of the number... They would see an increase of like 300,000 emails in London of the word flu and so they could predict it a little bit earlier than to say the nhs could because of the number of patients they were getting for flu yeah and then they can preempt a surge in flu vaccines 
healthcare professionals encounter people at the point where it's really developed you're not mm. going to go to the doctors until you have really having a problem are you i think that's a really good application you're, you're sort of doing a good thing you're addressing it before it happens it's companies using their advantage my worry is you're in the field and you know considerably more than i do but someone like myself who i can't code i'm interested in all of this stuff but don't really understand isn't it going to be elitist towards those who have the skill set to understand it or the money to be able to control it yeah i think you're right why you need things like universal basic income but the jobs that are going to be taken by ai aren't necessarily it's not just about the the difficulty of doing the job that's definitely something the government needs to take into account and start doing research into what we would do in that situation Mm -hmm. massive companies like google apple microsoft they're all taking huge steps in this direction but they're all profit driven is that technology in the wrong hands and how can there be oversight of that? Mm. I think it is concerning. The legal framework and the standards need to come in first. And I guess we can only do that if people start switching on to this stuff. Like, obviously, you're involved in the field itself, but people who aren't really engaged in AI and the future of AI, we are putting the responsibility of that future into the hands of people who may have their own Might not agenda. have the best interests. Yeah, so. exactly, yeah. yeah. It's just uh, science communication, isn't it? Disseminating this information to the general public in a way that they know how it will affect them and how they can voice their opinions. AI is going to become more and more prominent in politics. It'll affect our lives more and more. And certain parties will say it will either be pro-AI, anti-AI. I think it'll be big, say from 2030 or something. Mm-hmm. there's a really really good youtube mini series smarter every day he looks at social media algorithms and he was looking at on youtube for example there's an ai program is used to flag up duplicate videos there's one video here and a video here and it goes ah so the pixels from each video match up yeah therefore it's a copy and they don't want copies you could just spam loads of the same video this program has basically zoomed in a little bit on the video so all the pixels are then out of line Mm. they don't match up anymore or it will have a filter on the pixels so all the pixels are different colors it's deceiving the youtube algorithm so that you can put multiple videos up that are the same video but marginally tweaked yeah what's really bad though is a lot of these videos that are being uploaded of duplicate accounts are fake news right videos of trump or putin or someone saying things that aren't true that are they're made up and subtitles are all completely irrelevant things but quite believable still so yeah. there's a lot of some of these videos that get ten thousand likes lots of comments from genuine people but they're completely misled because some algorithm is getting around bullshit detection from youtube yeah it's like an arms race between the algorithms defending the social media platforms and people who are trying to manipulate masses it's pretty scary it is yeah these sorts of arm races are are happening a fair bit the army looking to camouflage their tanks. some people are developing ai recognized tanks even with camouflage Mm -hmm. the other side are trying to develop technology paint their tanks in such a way that they don't look like tanks but don't disguise them as a bush or woodland it'll be like a weird pixelated thing that looks mental to your eye but to another ai mm-hmm. it'd be like oh that's a cat not a tech yeah yeah that's mad but yeah it's like video thing who's responsible youtube or people who post the content it's, it's a case of the law not catching up with what people are doing with technology mm. people don't use newspapers as much so we've moved our news online but there's not too much oversight about who can post what and what's a verified news source and it's all about who can get the news out there quicker yeah, especially yeah. when people are looking getting their news through stuff like facebook so i, I think that's the sort of thing that needs to come from the law mm. lay down the law lay down the law 
Thanks, Ed. This has been incredibly interesting. Thank you. Yeah, well, my pleasure. If you are interested in AI and want to know about the future of the AI, get in touch, drop a comment, and I'm sure we'll get talking about it. I might actually recommend some some books. Do it. Recommend some bits. Go for it. Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom. Pretty good. Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. Uh, Look up the Future of Life Institute. And if you want to see medical technology going wrong, the bleeding edge. That's oh, good. That's amazing. Yeah. They're, one of my favorites is the laser that they were using to blow up cancer. And then they realized they blew it up and they just spread it all over the entire body. Oh my God. On that positive bombshell. Yeah. <laughs> Great talking to you. <laughs> Cheers. Brilliant. So uh, that does it for this episode on AI. A uh, big thank you to Ed for his contribution and uh, Monty for doing all the editing as usual. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, sort of give your thoughts and feelings on AI in general. Uh, use the Facebook Brain Dump group for sort of sharing articles and sort of general information. Uh, but as I said, we'll try and get as much content as we can over the lockdown period as there's going to be a lot of people pining for any kind of entertainment. I know that I certainly am. Uh, But yeah, get involved, get in touch and uh, take care. See you in the next one. Bye.